Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It is episode 219. We're recording this live on September 23rd for me and September 24th for our special guest. And this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I am joined today by the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Barry Kirby. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, and it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So, Barry, you're you're the host of 1202, the Human Factors podcast. So this is what we'd like to consider the greatest crossover of all time. Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm really well. Yes, as uh, the, when podcasts collide, this is amazing. Um, no, I, I think it's fantastic the fact that yes, we um, we do podcasts in the same domain, but actually we can come together just like good human fact, uh, factors practitioners should um, for for the greater good. So no, I, I'm I'm great. It's apart from the fact it's um, well, it's, it's early for me because it's just gone half past midnight. So I, I've uh, you could say I've stayed up later. I've just got up really early one way or the other, but. Uh, well, we are, we're so glad to have you here tonight. You're filling in for Mr. Blake Arnstorf. Uh, we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about a new model for mental maps and how you can use it to approach solving some of these novel problems. Uh, but first, I do want to go over some quick programming notes. Our coverage of the Neuroergonomics Conference uh, recap, that is out now. We released that a little bit earlier today, uh, so it's a good chance to hear from a couple members of our lab about their experience at the event. And I also talked to Louis Chuang, uh, one of the co-chairs of the event, uh, to get a little bit more insight from behind the scenes. So please go listen to that if you haven't already. Um, and with that, I think it's time we get into the part of the show we like to call. Human Factors News. This is the part of the show where we talk about Human Factors News. Let's talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. Barry, what's the story this week? Well, this week we're going to be talking about the new model for solving novel problems using mental maps. So how do we make decisions about a situation we've not encountered before? New work from the Center of Mind and Brain, that is a fabulous department name, um, at the University of California, Davis, shows that we can solve abstract problems in the same way that we can find a novel route between two known locations. And that's by using an internal cognitive map. So humans and animals have a great ability to solve novel problems by generalizing from existing knowledge and inferring new solutions from limited data. This is much harder to achieve with artificial intelligence because animals, including us as humans, navigate by creating a representative map of the outside world in their head as they move around. Once we know that two locations are close to each other, we can then infer or have a really good idea that there's a shortcut between them, even if we've never even been there. These maps make use of network, a network of grid cells and place cells in parts of the brain. This new work takes the research further by testing to see if people can actually use such maps to find answers to novel problems. Personally, I guess navigation of where you've never been before is a novel problem in of itself. But what do, uh, what do you think? So I think generally this makes sense. I think, uh, you know, in, in my everyday life or, you know, when I'm well, let me just say when I'm like visiting a new location, right, that's a novel situation i'm in a new location yeah. i might see two different landmarks and i might say oh i recognize uh that other landmark um and if you know i can see both of them from the same spot it's easy to say okay well there might be a shortcut between the two um but i i to me this tracks right it's uh it, i will say this story made me go back and kind of brush up on some of the mental maps and mental models and what it all means and we'll get into that in a minute uh, but I do want to ask you about your kind of general thoughts about this article and uh, what you thought. Yeah, I was kind of with that right from the beginning. I was like, well, why don't we know this already? Isn't this just the way that life works? But then it is actually one of them, these things that I think we take for granted that have, because that's the way we think, then yes, doesn't everybody know this? But actually what I found really interesting is that nobody's ever been able to prove this yet. And this is the first time that they've been able to prove that using that method um, to to navigate is is the way that we actually deal with uh can use it to deal with novel problems themselves so it was a bit of a well duh um but actually the the science of it is is really quite interesting yeah and basically you know the the bottom line here is that they're they're suggesting that there's this mechanism in our brain that's kind of um generalizable from the uh fr from the like mental mapping piece of it to the decision making piece of it right uh, I do want to jump into sort of a, a brush up, if you will, on 
on what mental models are, cognitive maps, mind maps, what are all these things, right? Because we're, we're t- there's a lot of terminology here. And I want to make sure we get it straight before we start talking about it. Um, so mental models, it, it's kind of our way of understanding what's going on uh, in the world, right? It's, it's what's happening in our head. Um, it it kind of shapes how we think. It shapes how we understand things. Uh, it also kind of looks at these connections or opportunities that we see. Um, what is a mental model to you, Barry? That's yeah. So the the for me, a mental model is sitting there and um, being able to almost generalize what's going on and being able to use um, 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 a reductionized. But it is a mapping in a way. But the the um, of being able to just understand how you. Uh, take the analogy of what's going what's going on out there and store it in your mind. Um, I think it's interesting that we do mix and match the, the cognitive and mental quite a lot. So effectively, they're synonymous um, with this. So, but fundamentally, having that um, that mental model just has that is just a representation of how how you store it in your brain and how you see things. The a really interesting an aside to this that's really interesting is when we have incorrect men- mental models or because the, the fact that we make our own mental models everybody's mental model is individual um so we've got when we're relying on people using their mental models then we've got to make sure that they can construct them in the in the right way but that's probably going off to, off tangent to a certain extent how do you think that differs from a a map or a cognitive map so i we did the research. <laughs> this is not my thoughts. Off the top of your head. <laughs> off the top of my head, I would say the cognitive <laughs> maps are the umbrella term for all visual representation. So let's let's actually break this down, right? So you have the mental models, which is this internal representation going on. Uh, yeah. And you have these cognitive maps, which are kind of the external uh, portrayal of what's going on uh, of the mental model itself. Um so I, I guess one way to think about it is that mental models are in your mind and cognitive maps are what happens in the environment. Uh, and that's as simple as I can put it. We can break them down a little bit more, but is that kind of what it means to you too? Yeah, no, absolutely. The, um, the, the mental of the, con- the, um, the modeling bit is the internal, it's, it's how you, um, how you do things. And then the, the mapping of it is how you can then, um, lay that out um, or see it out there and largely not just communicate to other people. So, you know, mind mapping, um, any of them sort of exercises where you have, where you're trying to communicate um, your thinking to somebody else's, um, that's all, that's all mapping it, mapping things out. Um, but it is really interesting because um, language at this, when we talk about at, at this point is so key um, because it's it's no wonder that uh, we we can get ourselves confused by it when we use, start to use terms interchangeably uh, when they really shouldn't. We should be um, clear delineators between the two. Yeah. So I want to get back to the study that we're talking about now that we kind of identified the differences here. Um, you know, this is straight from the abstract here, but they, they're basically saying that cognitive maps of an environment. So again, this externalized uh, representation of the internal mechanisms going on, right, can theoretically um, allow for flexibility. Um, and it, 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 the what I'm understanding is that there's kind of a, a spillover between the two. Um, they might use them interchangeably in this, but I think it makes sense, right? When you have that external representation, uh, there might be flexibility in that as you're approaching some of these novel situations. You might have... Um, like an external representation might, you know, if you take the navigation task, you might have one or more routes and uh, that would allow you flexibility for how to navigate between those two points. Um, I think uh, they're talking about cognitive maps um, kind of being stored in the hippocampus and brain parts, right? And and we can talk about brain parts. That's fine. I I like to focus on the applied aspect of this. Like, what does it actually mean? Um, Is there anything else that you want to take take out of that? (laughs) Yeah, I think we stay away from the the names of the various bits of the brain because some of them are really long. Um, But fundamentally, I think for me, it was really interesting the fact that they're they're looking at, um, even with the um, experimentation, they're they're taking the idea of the, um, the journey um, and working out your navigation, and they're they're putting it, the the novel task that what they're putting it to was was, and again taking this straight from their paper, 
they were give, given them a, a number of entrepreneurs and they, they give them scores um, of competence and popularity. But then when they asked the, um, the, the 16 people I had as the, as the volunteers, they were asking them to rank them or to, to partner them up um, to see who, who would, which team, which pairing would make um, maximization of growth potential uh, for if they would start a business together. The, what was really cool is that so they obviously had this cognitive map because um, they, they didn't give them all the information. They only give them bits of the information. And then they were using their own mental model to work out how you know to make these best pairings out of the two. And so when they were doing this, they were uh, measuring using um, MRI or fMRI, the functional Magn magnetic resonance imaging, which is not that easy to say. Um, but they saw that the, the 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 way that people do wayfinding or the pe way people do navigation using these grid cells that are referred to earlier, exactly the same things were being fired um, doing this type of task. So it just sort of shows that we use, that we take the information that we have in front of us, I think, um, in some sort of written form. We use that to then create our, or generate our own mental model in order to, um, to fill the gaps, um, which is... Again, I, I kind of feel that it's it's one of these things that you say, well, yeah, um, we 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 know that we do that, um, but it's just so. In fact, it's 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 so simple, it's stunning that it hasn't been done before. But I would guess that the technology hasn't been there to be able to um, study the brain in the way that they have with have um, have with this research. So it's again, it, I presume it's taking us back to a fundamental piece of work. Um, that we'll we'll have to leverage against in in future research. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think I think you did a great job, kind of outlining the research there, and um, really just kind of want to highlight, you know, that we're we think about navigation. Uh, you might think about it in in a grid like representation, and they even talk about these grid cells. Um, and basically, we're abstracting that grid like representation where you might take, you know, if, if you think about like an A one to Z. 29 or something right uh or i guess what is it z26 you might take a1 b2 c2 so on to get to z26 uh and and you're thinking about this in terms of a grid and i know this is abstract and kind of hard to conceptualize so i'm trying my best to describe it uh but as they're doing that they're making these connections between two landmarks right a1 yeah. and z26 and that you're doing the same thing when it comes to some of these novel solutions. And you're absolutely right. This is one of those things that's like, well, yeah, no, duh. Uh, that water is, in other news, water is blue, um, you know, here on Earth. But uh, <laughs> I think I think it is important, right? We, we, we see these studies, um, uh, I would say, infrequently, where it's, it's one of those this really no one's looked at this before but it's incredibly important and i think will be referenced you know a, a lot uh going forward you know this is uh published in nature so if, if that gives you any indication of its importance um impact factor of nature is undeniable and so uh yeah i i think it is definitely seminal going forward um you want to talk about this wine analogy that they're using? Here? <laughs> I was just about to say one of the best things I love about this paper is the fact that we not only so they talk about the the good stuff like rodent studies and, and things like that, but the um, they actually come along with uh, something that I can um, very much um, ascribe to, which is a wine analogy. So, and I'll just quote it from them that the, the the study suggests that the human brain does not have a wine list with fixed values but locates wine in an abstract multi-dimensional space which allows for computing new decision values according to the current demand um in fact there's a slightly better uh, quote further up where it says um for example people might choose wine a over wine b based on price or the pretty label depending on um on, on what your factors are but we know that our preferences can change by the food you will pair with the wine. Um, and whilst I like it just because anything that refers to wine is is quite high on my list, the, um, the, 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 I think for me what it's saying is that, yes, you in any normal situation, you might choose between um, A or B, but it's actually all contextual, and it's all about the environment that you're in. And um, in on, on one day you might choose it because of this reason. On the other day, you know, you, going back to the wayfinding, you might choose a different route because actually it has more underground and because it's raining. Um, and so depending on the circumstance will make you make uh, different decisions. 
Um, but fundamentally, we have a whole when we don't we as animals because it, it does point out that it's actually not just humans. It is a, it is animal um, all animals um, will do uh, will basically use a mental model to to work out what it doesn't know and to draw upon other experiences that that, that it's had. One of the bits that I think that is interesting in this that um, is a bit of a throwaway line, um, but I think it it does have some um, some underpinning things that we do need to think about is that it do, it does say that this is much harder to achieve with artificial intelligence. So for me, that's sort of you know the artificial intelligence that we see at the moment with um, automated cars and things like that. It's all based on effectively sort of knowledge based systems and um, and very quick decision making and doing you know. Do, it knows the, the the rules and the routes it's, it's going to take. Um, artificial, artificial intelligence can't do what we're talking about here. It cannot really sit there and take some abstract piece of, pieces of knowledge and and then come up with its own solution through the through the middle. We we still have to give it a framework and a guide to make that happen. Um, so yeah, so I, th- I think it's. Is this is the other driver around this paper is actually highlighting the difference between animals and 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 just actually showing just how far autonomy has to go? Yeah, that's a great point, and I think uh, I, w- I wanted to get into the application piece of it, and that's a great place to start, right? Uh, you, you're right in that artificial intelligence uh, requires sets to be trained against uh, to to build that model of how do you get from a one to Z twenty six. I'll use the same grid model, right? Uh, because it might go A1, A2, A3, A4, you know, all the way down A and then all the way across to Z to get there um, as one path. And then as it explores, it might say, okay, well, actually, um, you know, it's quicker to go A1, B2, C3 diagonally down to get to Z26. And that's the quickest way. Um, but then you you can throw other things on that grid as obstacles, right? I'm just describing generally how AI works. You can throw obstacles in there and it'll find the quickest way around those obstacles. But again, yeah. you have to say, here's here's point A and here's point B, and here are some examples of how you get there. Uh, yeah. If you were to just throw point A and I guess I said point B, but point Z, right, on that grid, it might not necessarily know what it's doing, Um I guess I guess the better example would say, here's a grid, and it doesn't know what to do with that, right? Yeah. That's kind of the, yeah. we don't know what's going on. Until you give it that training set of those two points, then it doesn't know exactly what to do. Um, yeah, and, we, we, and we've seen that, I think, in a fair, round of, uh, fair amount of technology at the moment, which is exploratory. So, you know, some of the first um, AI or knowledge-based system work was around the traveling salesman problem. And and that was done largely just through pure rule based um, work, and that's sort of evolved. But it's still based on you. You give it a uh, you, you give the AI a, an initial lesson, and it extrapolates from that. Um, what we have at the moment is um, if you were to put a some vehicle on Mars to do um, to do mapping and tell you to go places on on Mars, then it would struggle to do it in a, what we would deem an efficient manner um, because it just has to follow rules and it doesn't necessarily know the environment. So I think there is there is definitely things here for uh, for the technology basis. Um, but also I think there's, um, there is a real angle here for us to understand uh, human error as well because understanding this difference between how we make decisions at this deep level um, will uh, perhaps give us a better insight into when we're um, analyzing uh, human error or potential human error um, that uh, of just how we um, if if we're in an unknown situation how we will come up to come up to a certain solution because one of my um, I get not criticisms as such but I guess it is a criticism is with the human error world at the moment we focus a, a lot on making a, um, a small number even smaller um, reducing that that element of risk um, what we need to get to is understanding about how we how how truly we come to um, deal with decisions that we don't know about, and this might provide a the starting point for that sort of that sort of research and that sort of guidance. Yeah, decision making uh, is it interesting in general, right? Because I mean, um, this kind of helps us with a new framework, but there's a lot of things that go into decision making, like past experiences, uh, any cognitive biases going into this thing. 
um, you know, sort of e- even commitment and sunk uh, sunk cost fallacy that that all kind of plays yep. into decision making. Uh, even individual differences between people uh, can impact how you might approach a situation. Absolutely. So, so, so thinking about this being used uh, in application, right? We might be able to apply this framework as a way to to look at these decision making problems in in real scenarios, and say, okay, well, if they are in fact using this grid based system or these grid cells. Uh, how how might you know a fighter pilot make a split second decision to pull the ejector uh, to to eject their seat um, versus you know pull uh, versus stay in the cockpit and try to correct right like th- yeah. that's a that's a real world example of of using this framework to figure out uh, how they might do that right and and you might consider things like um, if if you look at that grid you know you might have potentially down the line, a way to plot uh, some of these, um, I guess, gamuts that I I mentioned, you know, individual differences, cognitive biases, you might have a way to plot those on this grid and understand or, or anticipate what decisions they might make based on the context around them. So the, this is actually way more important than I think we're letting on uh, because it does provide sort of a, a, a waypoint for the future to reference back to this and build off of i think you're right. i think yes i think i was just going to say i think this is more about right now i don't i don't think we're necessarily there in a place where we can use this yet i think this is we are still in the phase of understanding right and um so to use your example about how the you know does the um, pilot pull up pull the ejector seat or not i think we would use this model to understand why he made or he or she made the decision that they made right now but i would hope that maybe in either a few years time or 10 years time this would be this would have been that springboard for us to then say we now know how that's decision made therefore this is how we defect our design this is how it, how it affects um the, the 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 processes or procedures that we put into place um so that's how i think it could be used I do, it's but it's so fundamental at the moment i don't think it can be used for that yet yeah, I agree. I was I was really looking uh, very future forward there with my uh, <laughs> my speculation for application, but um, you know that's that is me, right? I I do want to like I don't know. I, whenever I look at these stories, I always like to try to figure out a way to apply it to everyday situations. And you're right, that is a far way off. Um, but yeah, highlighting the importance of this type of research um, for for building off of in the future. Yeah, understanding what's going on uh is there anything else that you want to bring up about this uh piece of research here well i think the i said i think the final bit for me really is the would be the relationship between this and just general wayfinding i think the that whole piece about how we do wayfinding and i was i was having a conversation the other day with with a colleague around um cognitive wayfinding and the the idea about how you um how you traverse your own mental maps um, um, or your own mental model, sorry, let's get back onto the terminology, um, how you traverse them and, and make them work. And I think the the analogy that's got with with what this is talking about is very, very strong. And it's, it's, I think it's one of these things I'm, I'm going to have to take away and go and, and go and actually now really think about it. Um, but what, what I like about this sort of paper, and it's like with some of the stuff that you've been um, been talking about, is the ability to talk about this type of thing and put it into a... Um, into more of a language and more of a discussion that actually makes it more palatable. Um, because we were sort of saying right at the beginning, you know, it's full of some very big words of, of things that are maybe not part of our um, our, uh, our own day-to-day working. Um, but it's really good to be able to discuss this and actually put it into, into a meaningful context. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we did ask everyone for uh, social thoughts. Uh, I do want to get to Lewis. Uh, so Lewis Chuang, he actually provided a social thought here. The question was... Uh, and we dropped this last week because we had some recording issues. But what methods do you use to make better decisions? And Lewis says, I run all mine through the long-suffering Francisca, <laughs> which is the, the other co-chair of the Neuroergonomics Conference, which actually this content uh, feels very much in line with that. So if you're listening from the Neuroergonomics Conference, hello, welcome. We typically get a lot of new listeners around uh, conference time. Um but uh, Lewis goes on to say, you know, otherwise, I usually try to set a countdown timer period uh, to allow for cool down 
rely extensively on scheduled actions, messages, or reminders. Um, and I think that kind of fits with this model, right? If you think about a, um, if you think about all those, what did I say? They were like gamuts or, or components that you might be able to plot on this uh, decision-making grid. You might have uh, things like messages or reminders on that grid to help guide you to make a decision one way or another. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's that's what I got. <laughs> No, I get, actually just off, off that um off that off that message I think one of the, one of the things it it does raise is the um when do you know you've got enough information to make a decision so from a military perspective they do often say you know any decision is better than no decision um any decision is it has to be timely um so it's no point making a decision way after whatever the opportunity has gone so that's possibly another thing within this is how do we know using our mental model that we do have um, enough information to make a decision to go forward? Um, or, do, you know, just at what point do you say, right, I've just got to do something? Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know quite how that would fit in with that, with that network. It's almost like having a big stop clock um, yeah. above the whole thing and said, you know, right, we're done now. Just, do you know, make the best of it um, and, and crack on. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I just want to thank you, our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at UC Davis for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, you can join me on Office Hours every Monday evening uh, Pacific time where I find these news stories. And we do post the links to our original articles and our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us in our Slack or Discord communities for more discussion on these topics. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, and we are back. Uh, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Uh, if you want to become a patron, there's, uh, there's, you can do that. It's, it's something that we do. Uh, you can help choose the news. You can get access to Human Factors Minute. It's all there in the advertisement. Um, We've actually been releasing some early audio for them uh, as part of the coverage of the Neuroergonomics Conference. You get early access to that type of thing. There's a lot of benefits there. Anyway, if that's something that you can do, uh, check it out. It might be might be something you can help out with. Uh, otherwise, I think we... Uh, I'll shut up now. Let's just get into this next part of the show. <laughs> it came from... It came from... Yes, it came from this week. It's all Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Uh, if you find these answers useful, give us a, a like to help other people find this content wherever you're at. Uh, we have three tonight, and I want to break these down one by one. So we'll get into this first one here um, by TWA8U on the HCI subreddit. This one is titled Categorical Difference in Job Roles. Uh, it says, uh, what is the difference in work and results, or the end product, in roles such as UX designer, UX engineer, UX designer, UX writer, project manager, product designer, and visual designer? Some colleagues have specialization in computing, industrial design, psychology, and digital media. Aren't they all the same? Uh, P.S. I graduated and worked in finance to move into content writing, so social media, blogs, emailers, uh, which is delivering simple solutions delivered by the client in an interesting way. So it sounds to me like they are trying to understand the difference of these uh, various roles to to what I'm thinking is they're probably writing um, job 
descriptions, but I want to get your thoughts on this because I think it is a really important question. Like, what what is the difference between all these roles, at least in your experience? Yeah, and I think this is a really good example of where things maybe um, differ slightly in the US and the UK as well. Um, for, I, the first thing that threw me, I was trying to work out what the difference between the UX designer was and the UX designer was, and I think they just wrote the same thing twice. <laughs> so, but the i mean certainly when you look at the you know like the project manager role that's a definite standout as something that is uh, more universal about keeping that um keeping the project on track um and making sure that they've you know got everything uh, facilitated they they need the difference between um um ux so ux designer engineer researcher or writer and just a i guess a, a standard product uh, designer and visual designer Will for me will be all around their engagement and um, and really I guess the the media that they use, but there is a certain element there around they're not necessarily all the same. Um, but to coin the phrase that that's a bit famous, um, it, it it depends on on the um, on on the on on the organisation that that you're going into. Um, but fundamentally, for me, your your UX designer is all about. Um, Putting together um, what things should look and look and feel like, your your engineer is about putting more together that that prototype and uh, making sure them 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 kind of things work. Your researcher is the is that fundamental underpinning piece about why you do what you do and making sure that the usability is uh, works with your um, with your end user or your um, end user audience. I've got to admit, UX writer is a new one on me. Um, presumably that that's a, that's a content piece, but um, I'm, I am guessing to a certain extent. Um, but um, I don't know what, what what about from your perspective. I think from so from a UK perspective, I don't think um, UX is quite as matured as it is in in the um, in the US. So perhaps we don't necessarily break down our, our roles in quite quite this sort of way or to this level of detail. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's a great breakdown. I think I think you had it right there. The designer is sort of the look and feel, engineer is prototyper, researcher is the one who's going out and talking to users. Writer is also new to me too. Um, when I when I think about these other other uh, three, uh, project manager, product designer, and visual designer, um, product project manager is the person who's overseeing everything. Um, product designer and UX designer are interesting i think product designer could be more broad strokes of like goals for the product uh yeah. this could be like you know i we want the product to do a capability a capability b and capability c where the designer is actually detailing out the fine details of those implementations um and the visual designer is, it differs at least for me from the product designer or the ux designer in that they're more the look and the UX designer is more the feel, um, or or the interaction. Uh, UX designer is more the interaction of the the look and feel, and the visual designer might you know establish the look of the product. So I, I think there's a lot of roles here, but ultimately uh, the point that I want to make here is that it depends. Uh, <laughs> there it is, right? It it really depends on what you see your role in the company being, right? You might be someone who with like, you know, Blake's skill set, he he has the ability to do some front end coding. And so he might consider himself an engineer, even though he participates in research um, and, you know, can actively design some interfaces. Like it, it just depends on what you want to call yourself. A lot of times, uh, you know, you're, you're, responsibilities will change based on the need of the product. Uh, and it might not always be the same thing. And there's a lot of bleed over between these. Um, and I, I basically, I don't know, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Just do what you are comfortable with and what your specialty is and kind of what needs to be done. And that I think should meet the standards, especially when it comes to you know, talking about your previous experience and things like job interviews or talks or anything like that. I, I don't re really think putting a label on it um, impacts you too much there. Uh, I, I do want to bring up this point here on specialization in computing, industrial design, psychology, digital media, engineering is another one that frequently comes mm -hmm. up. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like what the difference in backgrounds are and, and how that kind of applies to your role? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it can definitely um, flavor or bias um, your approach. So my background is uh, is engineering. Um, so I'm uh, as well as being a chartered ergonomist, I'm a chartered engineer, and so that really gives me a um, that real sort of not only an engineering approach to what I do. I tend to do tend to take more of a systems engineering approach, um, but also it means that when if I'm trying to work with other teams, as we invariably do, um, I actually feel more at home talking to the say the engineers side of things and trying to get our principles across to them and and, and what we're doing. Um, so, but I think it, everything gives you a bit of a almost a, a core of where you come from. Um, I mean, certainly again in the UK, we're we're in a position now that the um, that the undergraduate degrees. Um, or the you know your first degree that you would you you, know, you get as a either human factors or a UX um, engineer or practitioner, and they don't really exist now. Um, that you don't you don't actually get the the human factors knowledge kind of the, the human factors degree until your your master's degree, um, so your your second degree effectively. Um, and so most people now going into that got coming into our domain will have a a, a previous background. Um, for us, it may just probably I'll probably get shot down for saying this, but there's <laughs> a, a large psychology um, bent coming into human factors and a large amount of engineering, I think. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it is interesting, and it, it is interesting how it flavors people's views and, and approaches on, on how they do the day job. Um, the other thing I think I would bring up about that, about the so, so many different roles, I think it really depends on the size of the organization. Um, because if you're going into a very large organization, then chances are, yes, they the will have more roles split out because it, it helps to differentiate people. Um, most of the projects I think I, I work on, I'm probably, um, with, like, with two notable exceptions, I've been one of the, say, one of either one, one of one or one of two or three yeah. HF people working on them. And so all of them roles is me. Um, you know, it's it's the, we, we, we stick our finger in all of them pies. Um, and uh, now I'm even doing more, more and more project management, which um, sometimes fills me with joy, sometimes not so much. Um, but the um, yeah, I think I think it really um, the, the the size of the organisation really matters, and 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 seeing yeah the, the specialisations, I think they're they're a good idea. Um, I think they they really help give some depth to to what's going on. Um, so yeah, whoever did this, um, good luck with what uh, what what they move into. Yeah, I agree. I think you made a good point about kind of, uh, you know, the size of the organization. I, I have had a similar experience where, you know, I might be a little bit of a designer and a little bit of a researcher and a little bit of a uh, writer, you know, um, and writing uh, requirements along the way, you know, kind of <laughs> sticking my uh, toes into the engineer pile. So um, agree. I think I think it really does depend on on the size of the organization. And I roll my eyes at the, it depends but um you know in terms of background uh it, it's interesting too because you're right i think the majority is probably psychology or engineering uh and i i would say um not i, I i'm i'm probably going to get you know in trouble for this too but don't worry too much about which background you come from as long as you're in human factors your goal is to to make things better for the end user and i think as long as our goals are aligned how we get there uh, might take different paths and you know someone like Barry might be better at writing requirements or interacting with engineering folks and I might be better at at other things uh, although I think Barry's probably much better than at everything than I am uh, <laughs> I'm pushing and I don't think that's right <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I like you know I, I, as a psychology background I might be more um, influenced by the research side of things where I'm interacting with users and have different tools uh, or might understand cognitive psychology from a different perspective and might be able to implement some of those in the design you know so there might be some differences in uh, in in your background but ultimately the goal is the same right make things better for the end user right and but also with, with, with them different backgrounds as well where it really comes um really out really nicely is when you get together and be working as a team and if you've got two or three people who come from different backgrounds when you come together and gel as a team that adds such a richness to the output of what you've got um as i said recently um you know generally i work in in, in very small teams um but I, I was doing a project recently where i was in a department of around 25 human factors people but all coming from different areas and it was just such a nice experience to come and say, right, I've got this problem. Um, 
how do we think we'd solve it? And people will be coming up with different ideas from um, from really practical and applied, or um, you know, pure, I would what, what I would term like almost pure human factors um, approaches to. Well, actually, I did did some of this, and I've applied it in this way from a psychology background or from an engine. And it was just so nice to be in that world where you, you can actually come together as a, a cohort and have such a rich variety of experiences. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, let's get into this next one here. Uh, this one's from our Taxels Alive uh, from the user experience Reddit. Uh, this one is titled Odd Situation Where the Feedback of One Stakeholder Holds the Most Weight Out of Others. And they go on to write, I'm in a new predicament on my latest project and was hoping to get a second opinion on this. I finished the second round of initial stakeholder surveys and have gotten some amazing comments in the surveys. The client is already has already provided a previous unused design for their interface, and I included questions about it in the surveys. Basically just wanted to know in so many words why they had the previous design, what it was for, why can't they just use that, basically. Uh, why did they hire my team and I to make something brand new when they already had something? The feedback I got from the stakeholder survey was pretty minimal, except for what I received from one person in particular who cares a lot uh, of who carries a lot of influence over the approval process. When I asked about the previous design, person noticed uh, noted some very specific things they wanted and didn't want it in the design. Then I made a, a visual comparison to a very familiar project management tool I regularly use. So my take is that the previous design has already influenced them too much, and they're set on what they want. My initial research and ideation resulted in something a little different, so I'm pretty upset that I probably have to throw out my sketches. My question is, how do you handle a situation where a single stakeholder holds most of the power and already knows what they want? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? It's the um, as somebody who works a lot in the um, in the military domain, I, I come come across this on quite a regular basis, and and actually for quite legit, legitimate reasons that you have um, a user community made up of. Probably, you know, obviously the the military is a very um, um, has a very hierarchy installed in it, and you can have lots of discussions with lots of people in the room until the most senior officer walks in the room, and then suddenly everybody's got the same opinion, and it's a senior officer's opinion. Um, but the I think there's, there's sort of the, there's two elements of this that I think is quite interesting that the that they fact that they went out for um, user feedback that they they did the survey and actually got. Um, um very little feedback about it um the and then then when they actually went went to they they, they got this one person who was not only the only person or very one of the few people who actually responded and then they're very influential now i guess there's you've got to look at the influence of the person involved and say well is it influence upon the organization itself or influence upon the success of the product um and so and that the two are slightly nuanced, um, but fundamentally, you've as long as you've done as much as you can possibly do um, for the client, and if they are effectively the, the client representation and, and they're happy with with the way that it goes, then sometimes you just got to uh, do what you paid for. Um, but it's 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 a tough situation when you've you've I'm sure we've all been there when you've you've come out with some what you think is a really cool design it meets all the requirements it does the right thing and the client's seen something else and gone yeah but I want it to look like that because I basically they want that but cheaper right yeah I, I want to talk about a couple of things here uh, there's there's size and there, there's the size of the proposed changes right that you you might want to implement in uh, end product. There's also your role as a user researcher or a, a UX researcher. There's also at play here, um, you know, which which things are going to be best for the user out of many things that might be better for the user, right? So, so to me, there's three things, right? Who who has responsibility for the direction of the product? Who um, what what or what uh, updates to the design will best improve the user's performance. And um, I forgot my middle point, but I'll, I'll get back to it. So let's let's first talk about who has influence over this project, right? So uh, when, when you think about, um, you know, the singular stakeholder that has a lot of sway, this might be a project, a product manager who um, is determining what direction the product is going. That might be out of your control. 
uh, at, at this point. Now, I will say there are some tactics that you can use to help sway these types of roles in a certain direction. You might come back to them with user research that, you know, indicates that this design might not be optimal. Let them come to that decision on their own. Your your best uh, bet here is to kind of uh, convey the user uh, comments. And and again, this is a whole other conversation about how you do that diplomatically without upsetting anybody. But, um, you know, having, having those types of roles that are determining the direction of the project uh, come to those conclusions on their own is a big part of it. I, I the the one thing I forgot uh, was you know the size of the changes, right? Are you talking about an a whole overhaul of the system, or are you talking about you know just maybe minor updates here and there? I think you might be able to pick your battles, which is the third point uh, about which um, which pieces you want to include, right? If it's a whole overhaul uh, that's going to make this thing better, right? Like let's say you're using uh, a, a I'm, I'm just going to use an arbitrary example here, you know, a right-click menu versus a, a, a ribbon at the top of whatever product you're using. You might have all the controls in a right-click menu, but it might be more efficient to put them in a ribbon across the top. Uh, and, you know, you might want to advocate for some other control mechanism for, <laughs> for those uh, controls on that display specifically. But, um, you know, that's not your place to... to at least I don't see it as my place to influence the direction of the product if I've just been hired to do some research on the current implementation. Again, try to get them to to get you there. And then the, the last piece is picking those battles, right? If, if it is uh, going to be a huge um, influence on user performance and you have metrics to back this up, you know, sort of categorizing that uh, return on investment and making sure that the people involved understand what's at stake here. Like, oh, the discoverability of this control is, you know, they find it, you know, 10 times faster. Well, that's going to be huge uh, for, you know, some of those um, some some of those battles that you want to pick. So anyway, picking your battles, understanding the size and scope of the project and understanding who ultimately makes the decisions is going to be a, a big piece of this. So it depends. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. Um, but no, I mean, that, that picking the battles is is truly a key one because there's, um, you're all, I, I find myself quite often in that situation where you've got, you know, you want to change not only ABC, but XYZ as well. Um, but actually, you've got to turn around and say, well, actually, if, if, if they're not bought into everything I'm doing and I can't convince them by sheer numbers, because if they're convinced by sheer numbers, then they've probably been there already. You're probably going on something because you think it's quite cool or you think you just think it's the right direction. Um, so it's probably fairly marginal. Um, sometimes we've just got to remember that we are the representative representative of the user, but we don't run the world. Um, even though I like to think I run the world on on many occasions. Um, you know, fundamentally, you've, some things you've just got to say, well, you know, I tried, but let's not waste my energy anymore. Let's focus on the stuff I can achieve um, and, and crack on. Yeah, let's, the great points. Let's get into this last one here. This one is by Jessica Perlman on the user experience subreddit. We've seen that name before. So uh, this is their first time building a design team. They're feeling excited and terrified and they need help and advice. So they go on to write, I have been the solo designer in the company, or we can talk about any really role here um, as being the only one there. I have been asking for more designers and for this opportunity to build a design team for a long time. Um, and again, let's let's abstract it to research or research and design. Now that I have been given the green light to hire three to four more people, I'm excited and terrified at the same time. I've never managed anyone, and I feel like there are so many things I need to figure out from putting together a job description to figuring out the hiring process to actually managing and supporting a team. I almost regret asking that for this in the first place, uh, where should I start? I've ordered a couple of books, like Making a Manager and Org Design for Design Orgs. Uh, would appreciate any help, advice, or tips. Barry, have you put together a design team or a research team? And what was that experience like? Yeah, it's. it's I think I get completely where, where she's coming from. It is, it's a scary time. It's a scary situation. But actually, it's really exciting as well. If you can do it right, then you get to empower a whole lot of people to come together and and do some really cool stuff. So the first thing I would sort of suggest is um, they sort of mentioned about, you know, what's the hiring process and stuff like that. 
there are other people paid in the company to do that. That's your HR department. Get onto them, um, assuming that you're you know big enough to. It's a big enough company to do that. Um, that um, that there are other people in the organisation who can worry about the mechanics. But fundamentally, what you need to be doing is right. Work out what it is that you think you need, um, and you know if you and what skills are complementary. There's there's sort of two elements I sort of play with this is I, I work out what I can what I can afford to pull together. So is it in here they do three three to four designers, but you might it might be a team of ten, it might be whatever it is. Do some of that and then work out what the key one or two roles in there are to begin with, because if you do a gradual hire. Um, you pick out, you, you then can hire more people that build up on other people's strengths. Um, and so gr- gradually build up a team like that over a period of time. Now, the period of time might only be a month, um, but it might be longer than that. But identify three or four key roles first or two or three key roles and then hire to to complement uh, beside that. The the other bit that I find really interesting, and I will credit a, um, a colleague of mine, Joe Paulson, with this because he really got it with me that... Um, if you want to really build a successful team, you've got to hire successful people. You've got to hire good people. And the way he categorizes it, which I think is is fascinating, is if you're an A person, you hire A people um, because that you want to bring in the best people to help complement your talent. But then B people hire C people because they feel uh, that there's almost like an inferiority complex in there um, that you don't want anybody showing you up for what you do. But fundamentally, you hiring people is not there to you know, make your tea, make your coffee and stuff like that. They're meant to come in and complement what you do and boost what you do. Um, and fundamentally, if you're leading these people, then um, then they're going to take your direction. They're going to take what you do and and really empower it. So hire the best you can afford is um, probably the, the, the key thing that I've, I've learned um, over time. And once you've got them, keep them. Because if you have a good team that comes together and gels well, um, that just pays back dividends. It's brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Uh, a lot of a lot of team building, I think, uh, is not necessarily. Yeah, it, it is absolutely hiring the right people for the right tasks, but it goes beyond that, right? I want to talk about like the the piece once you've hired the right people. Um, you know, th- there's obviously team building exercises for a reason, and that's because. You do want them to gel, like you said, right? You want them to um, sort of understand where everyone's coming from. You want to not only that, but build relationships between them because the better communication flows between the same people or between different people working on the same project, the better that product is going to be because you're not having overlapping work. Uh, and, And part of this is on you if you're going to be put into a management position it's understanding exactly what pieces of work need to be done and who's responsible for those pieces of work and uh even even more than that kind of the pipeline of events that need to happen in order for a work piece of work to happen right you need to do research then you need to analyze results and then you need to um create designs based on those results and if you have a team then you're going to want to stagger it. And and at least my advice for this would be to hire a researcher first because they need to be able to identify what it is exactly that you're looking for. Um, and then maybe you hire, uh, depending on the size, right? You might hire a prototyper later to, um, or a designer after that to help translate some of those uh, findings into design and then a prototyper to uh turn those designs into testable interfaces. Um, and so kind of building it piecemeal, but understanding what each role does, I think is a big part of it. I think, I think you pretty much covered all the, <laughs> all the good bits of that. So um, we'll just go ahead and get into this next part of the show. Anything else for that one? <laughs> no, well, actually the one last thing I would say is um, a, make sure you interview twice um, and, have one of them interviewing um, that you're interviewing them, but let them interview you. Um, really encourage them to to show what show what they can do, and then talk to your people once you hired them, because you never know at the foot everything about somebody on interview or even like a couple of interviews. Um, they will have skills that you don't know about. That they'll have skills that they don't know about that they can contribute to the business. Um, so spend time when they first get into the organization, learning about them, making them feel comfortable, but also learning about what else they can do. What do they do in their free time? Um, because they'll have other things that they can complement to the business. Look at that. I learned something today. That's a great point. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew about it just hearing it, uh, 
sort of codified is is great. All right, let's get into this one more this part of the last part of the show. One more thing. It needs no introduction. This is where we just talk about one more thing. Barry, you got a really interesting one this week. What's what's your one more thing? So my one more thing is actually a bit bit of an advertising plea, to be honest. Um, I'm running an event next week, so next Wednesday, which is not this Wednesday, which I thought it was, as I was saying to you earlier, I nearly got myself into a, a right state thinking that um, that I wasn't there. But I'm trying to kick around this idea of climate ergonomics, this idea that we as a, uh, as a community can really do something about climate change. Because there's loads of people doing lots of really good stuff, loads of science, loads of the creating tools, they're creating all this stuff, but nobody's bringing it all together. And, and it suddenly I had this uh, this this epiphany moment of we can pull this uh, we can do this because this is what we do on a day to day basis we glue projects together we are the, um, the 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 butter within that cream sandwich type thing so part of this we've been doing some work over the of the past uh, past month or so where I'm holding a webinar next uh, like I said next Wednesday on the 29th through the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors um, so it'll be five o'clock UK time. But I'm doing a bit of a, pre- a presentation, but I've also got um, Murray Sinclair, who's from uh, a professor from Loughborough University, um, Richard Plenty, an organizational psychologist and author, and Joe Paulson, uh, managing director of Vindico and Think Air. They've been doing a lot of uh, work around air pollution and IoT. And so we're going to be looking at the the, the three different aspects of, uh, of this and how fundamentally how can human factors and ergonomics make a difference to this problem. So come along. It will be fantastic. Um, and there's no right answer to it. The whole idea is that we're trying to pull the community together and say, you know, what human factors, tools, techniques, ideas, or just general things can we pull together to help uh, solve this issue? Yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm on the list. I'm, I'm really excited to attend and, and see what it's all about. Uh, my one more thing is not so uh, so interesting, I guess. I don't know. Yours is very interesting and topical, uh, especially after that climate report came out a couple weeks ago. Um, but mine is on uh, sort of the storytelling of the haunting series on Netflix. Uh, my wife sat me down and had me watch uh, the haunting series because she thought I'd really enjoy it. And I did, I did it, the, the storytelling of these, uh, I guess they're like eight or nine episode series. Um, the director does a really good job of both ending on a cliffhanger and explaining a perspective of one individual per episode. And so uh, it, it's such a layered story uh, in both cases of Hill House and Bly Manor, that um, as you understand more about a certain character, you understand more about the story and they layer it in such a way that it's just like peeling off the onion. It's like, you know, there's a whole onion there, but you can't see what's in it. And so once you peel off one layer, then you understand just a little bit more. And each layer uh, is kind of getting its own focused episode. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing, uh, uh, way of telling stories and i'd highly recommend anyone who's interested in that type of thing to go check it out uh anyway i think that's going to be it for today everyone if you like this episode we invite you to check out uh, episode 181 if you like the flexible decision making uh that we talked about today uh, we talked about reprogramming brain cells in that episode comment wherever you're at listening uh what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion you can join us on our slack or discord communities you can visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. You can do that right now. Two, tell your friends about us. Uh, we grow from word of mouth. That really helps the show out. Or three, if you have money and you want to throw it at us, consider supporting us on Patreon. We'll put all that right back into the show. As always, links to all of our socials and our website will be in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about decision-making? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K and you can come check my podcast pack, podcast out at any time if I could say it properly, uh, which is 1202 The Human Factors Podcast and on any podcast directory near you. We'll put a link to both of those in the description. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday at uh, sometime. Anyway, for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, 
are safe when they do so and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media and on your favourite podcast directory because it's more than just common sense.